Hello and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. Today's episode is part two of our Q&A episode series. Go back in your feed a couple episodes to find part one. You can certainly jump right into this episode as we're going question by question, and they don't necessarily have relation to one another. But if you're interested in part one, either after the fact or before you listen to this episode, go ahead and jump back and listen to that episode. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really, really simple. AG1 by Athletic Greens is a category-leading superfood product, bringing comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everyone. Keeping up with the research and knowing what to do and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. To help each one of us be at our best, they simplify the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. One tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high-quality, bioavailable ingredients and a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid in gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system effectively replacing multiple products or pills in one healthy, delicious drink. I think by now you've probably heard my personal jam. I like to take Athletic Greens first thing in the morning as to get a jump start on my hydration as well as my nutritional needs. And on big ride days, if I'm feeling super depleted, I'll come home and have a second glass. So on a Saturday or Sunday, I might double up my servings. If you're open to giving Athletics Greens a try, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride. Athletic Greens has agreed to give a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs to any Gravel Ride podcast listener. So be sure to visit athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride to give it a try today. With that said, let's jump into part two of the Q&A episode with Randall. Next question was on optimizing the adjustment and float and tension on SPD pedals. I don't think there's much we can add there because it's a little bit of trial and error in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I don't know about the float. I don't even know if mine has like float adjustment. For me, it seems like it's just the tension. So I, how hard or easy it is to get in and out. And Mm -hmm. that's been something maybe I've amped up over time as I've become more confident, but certainly starting them out with them fairly easy to disengage is perfectly acceptable if you're not comfortable with clipped in riding. Yeah. And in terms of tension, I would definitely start with uh, a looser engagement and then tighten it down as you get more confident, especially when you're first starting out. And what else? Patrick and I actually talked about this in the bike fit episode, recommending shifting the cleats back. So if you're running mountain style shoes, which with a gravel bike probably should be, if you can run them in the, the back, the bolts to the back, then sliding the cleat pretty much all the way to the back. Now, if that doesn't feel right, you can always move it forward a little bit, but whereas there's no real problem with going too far back, there can be issues with going too far forward in terms of biomechanics and so on. And in terms of the float, you wanna be in the middle of the float and you never wanna be in a position where the you're, you're not able to pedal in a natural motion where you're using the cleat positioning to restrict your motion. That is a, a good way to end up with an injury. So definitely don't do that. I generally will start with the cleats in a position where it's restricting my inward motion so that my heel can't hit the crank arm. 
and then I'll pedal from there and see my in the middle middle of the float am I am I restricted any part of the pedal stroke and and if if not then that's a good starting point. But to really get this right again, it is hard to do this on your own. It's hard to see knee tracking insoles are a thing you want to invest in in order to help align the full stack from hip to knee through the ankle. And this is where listen to the Bike Fit 101 episode and consider working with a bike fitter. I was just going to say the same thing. It's like yeah. one of those things like, oh, bike fit. You don't necessarily go to cleat adjustment, but so often when I've observed it, cleat adjustment happens in a bike fit. Well, and it doesn't happen first, right? Everything else has to be right first. So if your saddle's too low and your arches are collapsing and, and things like that, you're already starting with things out of alignment and are going to have some trouble. But at least the advice that, that I just gave will prevent the worst issues. But again, go get a bike fit. Yep. Or, or listen to the episode the next at least. Yeah. The next question was about uh, what's the best technique for using a dropper post? How does this help with the physics of the ride? I'll let you go first. I, I, I certainly have an opinion on this one. This is a dangerous one for us. The listener, the avid listener knows we can go into a deep dropper post wormhole, but let's try to offer some quick advice. One of the things I'd like to remind people about with respect to dropper posts is that it's not just a all the way up or all the way down product. You've got the full spectrum of range, which means you should use it frequently. Obviously, when you're in, in heavy technical descents with steep descents, you're, you're going to slam it. But I quite frequently lower it just a centimeter to just give myself a little bit more room on terrain. Maybe it's a road descent or something that I'm super confident on, but it gives me a little bit more margin for error. And as I'm feeling maybe more nervous about the speed, I'll go down even further just to give myself, again, a, a bigger range, just a bigger margin of error. So practice and know there's no right or wrong. Use it frequently and you'll figure out what feels best for you. You've seen my technique with the dropper. I'm a bit more extreme. So for me, I use the dropper all the time. I have it down all the way on a high-speed road descent and I use it to allow me to move my mass around on the bike in a way where you know, if I want the front end to be more planted, I can put more mass on the bars, but then I can shift my weight down and back over the rear axle to lighten up the front end for say traversing really rough terrain. Provides that distance between the bike and the body where your arms and legs can act as suspension, your front wheel is rolling and sailing, your rear is doing more of your speed control. And in this way, it really radically improves the, the capability of the bike, not just off-road, but I would argue on-road as well. I descend much faster because I know I can grab a handful of both brakes and not be pitching over the handlebars. So for me, even on the road, I'm dropping it all the way in a lot of situations just because I like to go that much faster and it gives me that margin of safety. All makes sense. Next off, we're going to an area where, gosh, Randall, I almost think we need an entirely new category in the ridership forum, just about tires. What do you think? We've been asked for this for a while. By the time this episode airs, if we don't have a channel in there, somebody yell at us in the forum, we'll get that up. <laughs> the first com question comes again from Tom Boss from Marin County. Unicorn tires, lightweight, puncture resistance, fast rolling with lots of grip. What comes closest for you? I'm not getting in the weeds on this one. I, I, I defer to the hive mind and the ridership on this. I can tell you what, what I ride, but I'm yeah, going to make no claims so. about it being the optimal. Yeah. Do, what, what are you riding these days? Um, so currently I'm riding just a WTB Sendero up front. 
and a venture in the rear. And these aren't especially fancy casings. Um, they're not the most efficient tire, but they're pretty robust and they have great grip. And I like the mullet setup. I'm a big fan of going with something knobbier up front and like a file tread or even a semi-slick, depending on your terrain in the back. And yeah, that's the way that I go. We actually just brought in some Maxxis Ramblers and Receptors. So we go a Rambler small knob front and a Receptor in the back. And I like the 650 by 47 size. There are situations where I wish I could have a little bit more volume, other situations where I wish I had a little bit more efficiency, which tells me that I'm right in the middle of the range for most of the riding that I do. Yeah, for me, and and first off, full disclosure to everybody, I'm a Panaracer brand ambassador, so I want to put that out there. The Gravel King SK was a tire that I got on my first proper gravel bike, and I, I just fell in love with it. Then I left for many years and went on to more of a setup that you had, rocking the Sendero up front, thinking I was riding more challenging terrain and could appreciate the knobs, which I did. But recently I've gone back to the Gravel King SK and I do find it to be a, a wonderful all around tire because I, I, I feel super fast on the road and it does everything that I need it to do in most of the situations that I get into. Yeah, it sounds about right. And then there's always, yeah. if you're if you have a really long ride out to the trail you could always you know, bring the pressure up a smidge on the way out there and then you know give it a little pssst at the uh, the trailhead yeah and again it obviously comes down to where you are and one thing i'll just note really quickly and we've talked about it before is riding fully slick tires at a fat width has been remarkable to me how performance they can be off-road you think mm -hmm. you need knobs then all of a sudden you realize where you do need them but actually if you change your riding style a little bit if you've got a fat rubber tire on there, you can go and do a lot of things. Yeah, the dropper helps a lot with that in terms of just being able to be more nuanced with your body English as you're going over stuff. But yeah, I run 700 by 30 tubeless tires and I'll go out on the hard road rides and then I'll pass and I'll see a trail and be like, oh, what's over there? I must find out now. And then just go and do a little bit of adventuring. And you gotta pick, you gotta pick your lines. You gotta be careful not to hit anything square. Uh, square edged that's gonna bang up against your rim but if you're if your pressure is high enough and you're gentle enough with your riding you can do a remarkable amount most of the stuff that we've yeah. ridden in marin together i've ridden on slicks interesting at one point. yeah yeah i'm saying it's a good <laughs> idea but it's doable true and you enjoyed other parts of the ride and leaned into other parts of the ride presumably more because yeah. that's what the bike was oriented around on that particular day and maybe you needed to nurse your way down Blythdale Ridge or something, but you got through it. Yeah. And it's definitely more of an uphill thing than a downhill thing. <laughs> yeah. Like go uphill on dirt and then downhill on, on road. But okay. Next, we went on a proper tangent there. What yeah. Got sorry. Next? next one. Next question is from Josh from East Texas. It's around suppleness. Suppleness in tires is desired by riders. So how do I choose a supple tire without having to buy it and ride it? With no published measure of scale of suppleness on a given tire from the manufacturer, we are left with only this tire feels supple. Is TPI an indication? Why don't manufacturers provide consumers with this information? So I'm going to volunteer Ben Z and Marcus G in the forum as two people who seem to have ridden every tire I've ever heard of and some that I haven't. And there are others in there that have as well. But yeah, I think this is a matter of finding out what other people like and kindly asking their opinion and experiences with it. Exactly. I think that's a good recommendation. 
Yeah. Next question is from Tom Hinkle, and it's around tire pressure. He acknowledges that uh, he tends to ride harder pressures than a lot of sp- people seem to recommend, but he's also dented rims and had to wrangle to straighten them out enough to complete a ride. So he's nervous about bottoming out. How do you know how low is too low given the weight of the rider and width of the tire? Also, how does this vary by terrain type? The indication of how low is too low is really he's denting his rims and pinch flatting as well. You can have two riders of the same weight on the same tires at the same pressure on the same terrain. One will be a little bit better at picking lines or at shifting weight around and will be able to push the limits a little bit more. But if you're ponderous and steamrolling through things, then you might need to run the higher pressures in order not to bang the rims. Now, if you're not already running the highest volume tires that will fit in your frame, start there for sure. And if you are and you don't want to have to replace your bike, tire inserts, which is something that we haven't really talked about much and is in its early days in gravel, but is increasingly popular in mountain bike. And I'll be getting a set of these to try out. Isaac S. in the forum loves his and he rides hard. He used to ride his gravel bike like a full-on mountain bike and even cracked a rim once. And after he put in inserts, he never had any trouble and he was actually pushing his pressures even lower. So those would be the recommendations I have. Go biggest volume you can and get some tire inserts. Yeah, that makes sense. It's all trial and error. And I am eager as as well as the listener, I imagine, to hear what you think of tire inserts, because I do think it's yet another interesting part of the equation that some riders may be able to play around with successfully. Yeah, it, it has the same effect as adding a little bit of suspension. If you can drop the pressure that much lower and have a two-tiered suspension effect where you have the travel of the lower pressure tire, and then right before it bottoms out on the rim, you have this protective layer. So... Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense conceptually, so I'm excited to try it. Yeah, interesting stuff. Next question is another one from Kim Brown. How do you go around choosing the right tire for the ride? I guess I make more like quarterly or seasonal decisions around this and live Mm. with it. I certainly have brought my beefy setup bike to places in the middle of the country that didn't require such an aggressive setup. But it is what it is. Like, I'm not super concerned. But I imagine if you have the wherewithal and interest, you can dig in and find the right tire for every single outing. Yeah. And you definitely, again, see people who seem to do that. And that's great. For me, I have a bicycle company and I have two wheel sets and I leave the same tires on until they burn out. I'll even take the Senduro knobby up front. And when it starts to wear a little bit too much, I'll just move it to the back and put on another knobby up front. I mostly ride what I got and I get the two wheel sets. So I have 700 by 30 tubeless and a 650 by 47 mullet set up. And it's really more of a choice of which wheel package I'm going to go with than swapping around tires and things like that, which is a more seasonal or annual decision. Yeah. 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 Same. Next one is probably could have set in the maintenance section of this conversation, but how do I deal with a pinch flat or puncture or some other common issue in a tubeless tire? Punctures, down plugs, bacon strips, make sure you have a good amount of sealant in there and have a spare tube as a backup. If all that fails, if you've got a pinch flat in a tubeless tire, if it's on the sidewall, then you know you do what you can to to get home sometimes a plug will work but if it's in the sidewall you're probably going to want to replace that tire versus in the the meat of the tread where the rubber's a lot thicker a plug can you know last for the remaining life of the tire and last thing would be if you really have a, a problem and you have a tear in the sidewall 
a boot or even just jam putting a dollar bill or something in there so it doesn't continue to spread just so you can get home and maybe running lower pressure so it doesn't blow out the sidewall yeah if we assume the question came from someone who knows how to change a tubed tire and has been through that experience just a couple other things i would highlight that may not be known unless you've had to go through it if you are replacing a tubeless tire with an inner tube, you do need to remove the valve core first. And you can expect that if you have ample sealant remaining in said tire, it's going to be a messy situation. Yeah. I don't know what the right thing to do is if you leave the, t the sealant in there, but it's going to be all over you. It's going to be all over the place. It's just something you have to deal with as you get that tire and, and get your tube in there and find your way home. Yeah. All the more reason to get plugs. And just have plugs with you because oftentimes you can get by with those. Yeah, 100%. The first time you plug a tire, it's like a eureka moment and you just top off the tire and continue on your way. Mm -hmm. And when it goes beyond that, then you're very sad and you will have to deal with quite a mess. But there's a picture that I think Isaac in the forum shared where he had a hole plugged with eight different plugs <laughs> in the sidewall. Very, and he kept riding it for a while, apparently. So... <laughs> Bravo. Maybe change that casing a little bit sooner so, though. <laughs> Related to tires, we're going to move into a section on wheels. And Matthew Wakeman asks, what kind of situations would be worth considering three wheel sets versus just two for do most of it bikes? So my thinking is the first wheel set is probably a, a wide 700 that can take everything from road to gravel tires and then a even wider 650 that's more focused on gravel and adventure riding and then an even wider two niner that would be your mountain bike setup now that's getting into two bikes so you have two bikes three wheel sets between them if you're just with one bike for everything then if you're racing or if if you're constantly switching between very focused road experience to a fast hard pack gravel experience to a rugged bike packing adventure sort of experience then it would make sense to maybe have two 700s and one 650b Re really would be the, another 700 slotting in the middle there yeah That's for me it's really around tire selection on those wheel sets and yes it would be a luxury and uh, full disclosure i do have three wheel sets in the garage and I'm splitting hairs. Literally, it's because I'm too lazy to change the tire and I have the luxury of having the third wheel set. So I've got my sort of knobby, fairly narrow 700C off-road set that will only take me a limited amount of places from where I live. I've got my one that I spend most of my time on, which presently is 650 by 43. And then I've got a 700 with a 30 road tire on it. Yep. And it's more like, Totally, when I only had two wheel sets, it was all good. Just choose between road and mountain and don't worry too much about it. I don't even have three wheel sets, Craig. Bravo. Next question comes from Craig O. I'm curious on the difference between 650B and 700C and confused about boost standards, wheels, hubs, rotors, and whether it's worth the investment to pursue or just stick with my current wheels. Ideally, I was interested in putting faster, thinner type tires on my 700C wheels that came with the bike for all day road rides and a second set of 650B fatter, grippier types for off-road fun. I think we've talked a lot about 650B versus 700C on other podcasts and also on this podcast today. But I was interested in this question around 
standards. As someone who has a mountain bike, I was aware of boost standards. What is going on with that with respect to gravel bikes? And, and do we see a path towards a boost standard for gravel bikes or are there specific design considerations that make that not likely? So we have one, it's called Road Boost and it seems to have been driven by the emergence of e-bikes as a major category. And what Boost does is it increases the spacing up front, 10 millimeters in the back, I believe by six. And it allows the flanges in the hub to be spaced more widely apart so that you have more of a bracing angle and more lateral strength. So the same amount of spokes gives you greater lateral stiffness and, and strength. So that's the benefit. Now, does it matter for gravel bikes of running up to say like a you know 2.2 tire or even a 2.4 without suspension? It's, it's pretty minor gains. I do think that we're going to see a transition towards road boost, which is a 12 by 110 up front and 12 by 148 in the rear. There's trade-offs, one of them being, uh, well, for pure road bikes, it's gonna be trivially less aero. There's always the aero marketing story. And then two, in the back, to you end up potentially having to increase the Q factor of the cranks. So most people actually benefit from more Q factor than the super narrow ones that used to be common on road bikes. So it's not really a problem for most riders, but it's just like another design constraint. There's trade-offs. There's a, you have to fit a lot of things in a tight package and that's the issue. But it's out there. You see a couple bikes with it, especially e-road bikes and e-gravel bikes. And I think over time you'll see that transition, but don't consider it an upgrade that you need to you know, swap your bike to get. It's, it's, not mean, it's not a meaningful thing in that regard. And you can get most of the benefits by just doing asymmetric rims, which that's why we and, and others do asymmetric rims to balance the spoke tensions and angles. Gotcha. I'm gonna slip a personal question in that I had put in the forum. How often should I grease the threads of my through axles if I change wheels frequently? Often enough so that there's always grease on them and no dirt. And if you have any wear on the threads, you should be doing it more often and use a thick, thick grease. But if you get any dirt in there, like if you drop your through axle or something like that, now you have basically a grinding compound in the threads. So you want to clean that up. But yeah, that as with any interface, it will wear over time. So grease is your way of you know allowing that interface to last longer than the bike. Yeah, great. We've got a question from Alex from Tifton, Georgia. What's happening in the gravel scene to involve youth? You seem to be taking out Junior fairly often on <laughs> whatever kid's bike with whatever tires it's got on there. I think that that counts. Yeah, I just want to expose my son to riding off-road. And so he's still on a 20-inch wheel bike, but I've put some monster like 2-1 tires that I found on it. It's like a monster truck for him, which I think he enjoys. I think it's the key to bring the youth through mountain biking and discover gravel versus prematurely introducing drop bar bikes. Yeah, I'm of the same mind. I have a niece that I take riding in the same way and it's just like she has a 20 inch wheeled kid's bike and I just take her out on the dirt and get her comfortable riding on those surfaces and pushing her comfort zone to try new things, but then also just instilling this deep love of the adventure experience, which for me, what we're calling gravel is really all about. It's like going and exploring the area where you live from an entirely different angle than you would get in a car or on foot. 
Uh, yeah, agreed. And then, of Next course, there's is- NICA. We have some coaches in the listenership. And then the New England Youth Cycling Association. Actually, uh, Patrick and Lee Likes Bikes are doing a skills clinic with them in October. So you have that. And then urban off-road bike parks. A lot of kids in the city don't have access to, to trails. And so just providing that access, I think, is critical. And there's an example of uh, McLaren Bike Park in San Francisco. It's in a part of the city that is pretty far from the bridge and pretty far from the the Santa Cruz Mountains. And so this would be it. And there's uh, plans potentially to expand that and building more urban bike parks, I think, is a big part of that as well. Yeah, for sure. You bring a huge skill gain to gravel if you come from the mountain bike side. Yeah. Yeah. And starting with a hardtail or even a rigid flat bar bike is a great way to go. 100%. Next question comes from Alex in Columbia, Missouri. And it's a question about frame design. With the growing market of gravel, where when does the aero slash race versus endurance market become two separate markets? Also, how far do you think it'll go? Narrower tubing, et cetera. There seems to be a split already forming with aero features being added to gravel bikes. I, I have strong opinions here, so I'm gonna let you go first. Yeah, I think the brands are already splitting hairs with these categories as it is. And part of it is positioning vis-a-vis other competitive brands. Part of it is just the designer's vision for what this bike is intended to do. And those lines are blurry and murky and are gonna come down to individual brand managers to execute on. So I think it's already a total disaster. I think most aero claims, especially in gravel, are entirely bunk and it's marketing. And I'll give an example. So on a road bike, a designer can control almost all of the parameters except for the rider, which ironically is the biggest one, more than 80% of the aerodynamic profile. The tire width being a big one, right? So you can have your rim width and your rim depth match to the width of the tire. You could have the down tube optimized for that tire to end up really close to the front leading edge of that down tube. And the down tube can be really narrow. So you have a, a smooth transition between rim to tire to frame in a way that minimizes turbulence. So with a road bike, it's a more of a controlled system. And even then, the gains are very marginal. And if you look at the what marketers are usually claiming, if you add up all the watts that you saved, you'd be traveling at 100 miles an hour on all the different components you can buy. On gravel, it's worse because you, you have really wide tires. And so you'll have a deep section rim with a big old tire on it, and the tire is much wider than the rim, you're already having detachment of airflow as soon as it comes off that tire. There's a rule which folks can look up, the rule of 105%, which says that as long as the rim is 105% the width of the tire, then you can generally get good attached flow over the rim regardless of that rim's shape, with certain shapes being marginally better, but that 105% rule being more important. But if you have a big old tire on an aero rim, all that aero rim is doing is adding weight and um, potentially increasing turbulence, especially in a crosswind where it's going to make it harder to steer. So that that's my take on wheels. And then obviously handlebars and all that other stuff, very marginal gains, especially given that it's not being designed as a system around the tires and so on. 
arrow helmet and rider position rider position is the biggest thing that you can do if you want to improve your arrow yeah and i was looking at the question more less so about like aerodynamics and more of just marketing and bikes in general and seeing that there's just the spectrum of bikes that are marketed in different ways from endurance road bikes to aero road bikes to aero gravel bikes I totally agree and understand your comments and my comments are more just related to the market in general and how there's a plethora of things being directed at consumers and it's ever more confusing to figure it out. Fortunately, with most quality gravel bikes, you do get this one bike that can do a ton of things and bikes that you can configure in the way that you ride them. Yeah. I think you'll see the incorporation of some functional arrow. There's no reason not to do a tapered head tube or, or certain other things, but it's such marginal gains. And really, it's hard to build an arrow bike if you're not controlling for the tire volume. And given the divergence in tire sizes that these bikes use, that's not a really a controllable variable in design. Yeah. Yeah. So the final question comes from our friend Marcus in Woodside, California. What are your guesses about the big bike tech quantum leap forward coming next? Similar in magnitude to DI2, to Zwift, to e-bikes, and all of green bib shorts. Marcus is a good friend and uh, was definitely on trend with the bib shorts there. Really, how do you top that? How does the industry come up with the next thing after all of green shorts? Nothing can make a rider faster or look better than all of bib shorts. So that's it, Marcus. I think that's the end of innovation in the bike industry. Yeah, this is a space that you know that I've put a little bit of thought into. I'm going to let you go first here as well. I think that makes sense because I agree. This is a tailor-made Randall question. I do think the continued use of electronic componentry and other electronics that we all use has to lead to more integration in bicycles, whether it's like battery packs that are embedded in the bikes that can power both my components, my GPS computer, my headlamp, all these things. I feel like it's a natural point, just like we're seeing in every other element of our lives where battery and power is required. These things start to appear in more innovative ways. So I I think that's interesting. I think on the the e-bike market, we're starting to see more and more of these bikes that not only is the battery removed, but also the engine, the sort of the motor part of the componentry comes out. So you start to get this bike that has a semblance of ability to ride without the E component of it. And it's not gonna match a pure performance bike, but it may for some people while still having that opportunity to use the e-bike functionality. So I think those are things that trends that we're definitely gonna continue to see and, and some more forward thinking thoughts. Mm. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I have a little bit more nuance to add, but I want to start with the big low-lying fruit. And we started doing this basic things like proportional crank length. I find it nuts that the industry up until recently didn't really make anything smaller than a 165 crank and continues to not offer shorter cranks for shorter riders. This is one thing that we did. And then you now see FSA has done a good job of having offerings down to, I think, 145 to accommodate smaller riders. And so proportional crank length 
proportional wheel sizes, I think, is a big opportunity. There's no reason why really small riders shouldn't have their wheels scaling to some degree. We already have a 26-inch size, so maybe for the, the biggest tire volume on an extra small bike, you'd run a 26 by 2.2 or something like that. You'd need more tire options, but otherwise it would help to make that bike perform more like the bigger ones with a bigger rider on them. So those are two that I would really like to see. I'd like to see a continued innovation on integrated quick on and off storage solutions. So I think lightweight bags and so on are really slick. And I think that we'll continue to, to see innovation there. You mentioned electronics. I agree. And it's getting ridiculous with the number of batteries you can have on the bike. If you have a wireless shifting system, you can have a battery in each hood, battery in each front and rear derailleur. You can have sensors on the bike, each with separate batteries, a heart rate monitor with a separate battery, two lights with separate batteries, computer. It's silly. And it adds a lot of cost and weight and complexity to the system. So I think there should be a single battery on the bike and that there should be a universal standard that all uh, components use. I don't think this is going to happen because everyone wants to trap you into their particular walled garden, but that's a you know conversation for another day. But Definitely. yeah, th those are the big ones. And then lastly, self-contained e-bike systems that leave nearly nothing behind. Maybe some sort of lightweight regenerative braking for this one battery <laughs> I would like to see, but first things first. And then subtler suspension designs which I, I think we're already starting to see with the more compliant, like flexible components, bar, handlebars built with a little bit of flex or a suspension stem versus going whole hog with a, a full-on suspension fork just to get 30 or 40 millimeters of travel. Did I yes. answer your question, Marcus? Let us know in the forum. Hope, hope you're satisfied with the answer. And uh, what is the next color of bib short, Craig? What do you think? That's putting me on the spot. Maybe like a tan might do, so something that makes you look a little bit nude. Ooh, yeah, that would be that everybody would be really comfortable seeing that. Yeah, dangerous, dangerous yeah. territory. Yeah, we will have various um, options to match everyone's skin tone. So we all look like we're riding in the nude. <laughs> <laughs> Trend leader, Craig this, Dalton. This was a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. And it would not have happened without the community. So big shout out to the ridership community and to everybody who submitted questions. I'd love to see us do this again. So we'll probably set up a channel down the line and put the question out there again and see what gets generated because it was a lot of fun chatting with you about these questions. Yeah, it's what we do on our rides only <laughs> we've recorded it this time. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. On behalf of Randall and myself, have a great week. And until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.